2016, Chicago saw over 700 murders. But ask 10 people what's causing this violence, and you're bound to get 10 different answers. Gang turf wars, social media, backlash against police, poverty, easy gun availability. But one group of researchers has been looking at this question for years, trying to separate fact from fiction. The University of Chicago Crime Lab, led by Jens Ludwig, a faculty member at Harris. Today on Radio Harris, we sit down with Max Kapustin, research director at the Crime Lab, and we talk about the story that's told of Chicago's homicides. What are people getting right, and what are they getting wrong? To begin with, these murders are often grouped together in the category of gang violence. But Max says that even that is probably not what you think. I think a lot of people have this notion in their head that gang violence specifically is large hierarchical gangs that carry out hits like you might see on some television shows. What we're actually seeing is that, you know, the gang environment in the city is is quite fractured. A lot of people are involved in gangs just based on where they live. Um, These gangs are are quite small and are really more just groups of friends often or, or associates. And the actual proximate cause of the violence is often just arguments conflicts that spill out into into violence because there are guns available um, in such large numbers. Right. So this sort of idea of the hierarchical thing, this sort of vast network of drug suppliers encroaching on each other's territory and this sort of um, very strategic idea, was that ever really the case? Has that just changed over the years or was that never right to begin with? I think it probably was true to some large extent decades ago. And it's not to say that violence related to the drug trade doesn't exist anymore. It still certainly happens. In fact, even just within Chicago, it's geographically a bit distinct. Like on the west side, we think there's more of that than, say, on the south side. So there, there are certain localized patterns that still are affected by, by, by the drug trade. But what we're seeing a lot more of now, and again, I don't think anyone fully understands the reasons for it. I mean, part of this is, is driven by, let's say, the rise of social media. That's a relatively new innovation in the last couple of years. Social media has made it possible for personal disputes to just happen much more quickly and, and in broader view, right? Because they happen online, they happen on Instagram and on Facebook and Snapchat and so forth. But I think that the, the structure of gangs has changed in the last decade or two. They've gotten a lot smaller. Sometimes it's not even probably accurate to really describe them as, as gangs per se, because that, that term itself, I think, connotes a lot of people. The gangs that they think of, which are you know, from the 80s and 70s and so forth, these large organizations that might span a, a large geography and have lots of members, that's really not the case these days. Can you kind of give me an example of what you just said about how social media amplifies things? Sure. I, I, mean, I can give you an example and, and sort of tie it back to what what we used to see. So let's say back in the day, you might have had one group go into another group's territory and tag a building, right? Just use graffiti, leave their slogan, and then, and then leave, right? And then the other group would, would discover it the next day and realize, like, okay, you know, they were in our turf, they should have been here, and it starts a, maybe a tit-for-tat of some sort. Now you'll have a group go into another group's territory, pull up their phones, get on Facebook Live, and broadcast themselves standing on their turf, literally by you know, a street sign, intersection, holding guns, and saying, here, we're here, and we're in your space. And that will be viewed by hundreds, if not thousands of people. And you can imagine that spreads a lot faster and a lot wider than just tagging a building. Wow, how do, we know, how do you know this? Well, to be clear, I was not the one on Facebook Live watching this. However, this, is, this phenomenon is not new to, to the people who work in this space. So if you work in schools, if you work with these youth, if you work in law enforcement, you know about this phenomenon, and certainly, 
different folks are, are, are watching this, right? They, they have every reason to. They want to know if you're a school administrator, you'd like to know whether maybe some of your students are are doing this just for, you know, preempt a kind of a problem that, that might spill out in, in, in your school building. If you're the police, you certainly want to know whether there's going to be a retaliatory attack launched as a result of some type of activity that you spot on, on Facebook. A lot of the stuff happens in plain view. This is, you know, this is for public consumption, essentially. It, it's almost in some sense intended to be because they want, they want to broadcast that, you know, we are here, we are doing this, and they want other people to see that. So I've definitely seen a narrative behind Chicago's violence, which goes as follows. Relatively recent attention towards things like police brutality has led police to be more cautious about their policing, and this has led violence to sort of run rampant unchecked. What is right or wrong about that narrative? I think there's a, a bit of nuance that needs to be added to that. So if you look at the data, and you just wanted to answer that question about police activity. What have the police been doing, especially recently in the last year or so? You might look at a couple of different things. You might look at arrests, right? Have they continued to make arrests at a similar pace to what they've been doing before? What you would notice if you looked at that is that total arrests have, have gone down last year, but that's part of a trend that predates sort of recent history. It's been going on for, for several years. But if you look at the arrests for the more serious types of crimes, the kinds you mentioned, right? So if, if, if the narrative you're, you're concerned about is people are being emboldened because police aren't arresting violent criminals, violent crime arrests have not really changed all that much in recent memory, right? Last year was not much different than the year before. Uh, same is true for shooting arrests, for homicide arrests, for the most serious kinds of violent crime arrests. You haven't really seen any dramatic change. In other contexts, though, you do see some differences, right? So if you look at the number of police stops, so these are the stops, Terry stops essentially that police conduct on the street, where they stop an individual, ask them questions, possibly search them. Those have gone down quite a lot in 2016. And there are a number of potential narratives as to why that happened. A lot of things happened at the very end of 2015, including there was the release of the Laquan McDonald video. There was the announcement of the DOJ investigation into the Chicago Police Department. There was the ACLU agreement that changed what sort of reporting the police had to do after every stop. So there were a number of factors that, that happened all kind of close together in about a span of four weeks, right at the end of 2015. And in 2016, we saw just a large reduction in those street stops. Now, on the one hand, that data point aligns relatively closely with, I think, what we've seen is in, in the data about a spike in violence in 2016. On the other hand, other cities have seen a decline in their street stops without the sort of increase that we saw here in Chicago. So in New York, for example, uh, I think a district court judge found that the NYPD's practice of street stops was unconstitutional, and the department changed course, decided they would drastically reduce the number of street stops, which they did, uh, something like on the order of 90% over the course of about a year. And violent crime in, in New York just kept falling gradually. So it's really not clear what the relationship is between street stops and violent crime. So even seeing that play out in Chicago, doesn't really give us a whole lot of evidence to go on as far as, you know, drawing a kind of a clear relationship between those two. I think certainly in any sort of, you know, going forward, if you think about how we're going to actually change the pattern in Chicago, how we're going to reduce violence, I think, I think law enforcement is part of that solution, right? So Im improving law enforcement in, in myriad ways. But I don't think that you can really point to one type of activity that's gone up or gone down that police have been doing and say, well, that's, that was the cause of, of kind of the recent, the recent increase in violence. Do we have reason to think that gun availability, or lack thereof, is influencing the amount of violence we're seeing in Chicago? Well, sort of as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier about the, the actual like 
proximate cause of violence, right? When it's these interpersonal disputes, um, often fueled by social media, and people reach for a gun to settle those disputes, I think having that gun near at hand is, is certainly a, a, a large factor in why that violence becomes lethal. As to the number of guns and the availability of guns, this is something that we're very actively working on, try to get more, more data and more information on. There really isn't, right now at least, a very good estimate of just how many guns are even in circulation in Chicago, in the underground gun market, where they're available for people who want to go out and, and actually commit a shooting or, or, or reach for a gun in their waistband uh, to settle a dispute. We, don't, we just don't know. It's an underground market. It's, you know, they don't publish data on it. So we, we do our best to use the data sources at our disposal. Um, Which are what? Oh, data, for example, on, on gun recoveries, on guns that are submitted for tracing so we can know, you know when a gun is actually recovered at a crime scene, try to say, okay, how did that gun get there, right? What was the actual story of that gun? You know, some of these guns change hands a bunch of times. And then how do they even get into the underground market in the first place? Someone had to purchase this gun legally at some point. And going back to that, to the source to say, okay, here's, you know, here's where the gun was actually purchased. Maybe it was purchased nearby in Cook County or in Indiana. Maybe it was purchased very far away in California or Mississippi or Alabama and somehow made, made its way into the city of Chicago and found its way into the underground gun market. So that's all kind of a very active area of research for us because there is no, there is no separating the story of violence in Chicago from gun availability. And so Understanding how guns get here and how they're used, how they change hands, is, I think, going to be critical to understanding how to reduce the availability of those guns from the people who actually would, would, would want to use them in gun violence. Is there anything that most people are missing? So I think one thing a lot of people miss, and this is, this is because Chicago, I think, gets a lot of attention for the gun violence problem here and the murder problem here, is that you know, Chicago is a very large city, right? So just because of our sheer size... And having the homicide rate that we do, we, we end up having, let's say, the most homicides. I think we had the most homicides of any, any city last year. But if you take into account the fact that we're a very large city, and you look at our homicide rate per capita, it's not nearly the largest in the country, right? It's, it's somewhere in the middle of the pack for sort of similar cities to us. So cities like St. Louis, Baltimore, New Orleans, Detroit, all have higher homicide rates per capita than Chicago. And some of the problems that those cities are facing are, are, are similar to the ones Chicago is facing, maybe just more extreme versions of it. But it's, it, it also suggests that the solutions that we would have to come up with here in Chicago to help the city could potentially also have an impact in those other cities, right? Not, not to say that the factors that lead to violence here necessarily are identical to the ones in those, in those other cities, but, but I think some of the characteristics of the solutions that would potentially work in a place like Chicago could also have an impact beyond the city's borders, right? Because this violence problem is not unique to Chicago. It exists in, in, other, in other similar cities, sometimes usually smaller cities, but it's, it's a problem there nonetheless. And it's just important to think about, you know, getting things right here in Chicago is not just about helping the city. It's about helping a lot of other similar cities that are struggling with, with serious gun violence problems of their own. And we've talked a lot about the roots of the problem. What do we know about ways to solve this problem? Well, I think that the Crime Lab's work has, um, has shed some light on a couple of different approaches that seem promising. So, for example, one of the earliest studies that we worked on uh, was of a, a program run by an organization called Youth Guidance, um, and it's, it's a program called Becoming a Man. And this, this program offers group cognitive behavioral therapy sessions for these high-risk youth in schools. I think it's once a week. And we've now done, I think, two randomized controlled trials of BAM 
Um, so this is, this is the same methodology that, that medical researchers use to, to evaluate medical interventions, and it produces kind of the most rigorous evidence possible. And these trials have shown that BAM has been extremely effective at reducing rates of violent crime among participants. And not only that, but as we, as we sort of accumulated more data on these participants, as we, as we saw how they progressed through high school, uh, we saw that it also improved graduation rates as well. So, you know, this is a relatively, compared to, compared to a lot of interventions that people think of when they think about reducing violence, it's, this is a relatively low-cost intervention. And especially given how much violent crime costs society, the actual benefits of a program like BAM relative to its costs are, are, are quite large. Another program that we've studied here at the Crime Lab is an evaluation of, of the city's summer jobs program for youth. So this program is called One Summer Chicago. So we also conduct a randomized control trial of, of One Summer Chicago, focusing on these, again, high-risk youth who are offered summer jobs, and similarly found that it reduced their rates of, of involvement in violent crime, not just during the summer when they were employed, but also even for, for quite a while afterwards. One other sort of area that we're also actively involved in right now, sort of shifting away from programs targeting youth, is, is working with law enforcement to test out a number of different strategies for reducing violent crime including providing help with, from our analysts in um, initiative that the police department is, is actively expanding right now of building out these strategic decision support centers in each police district, meaning these are, these are rooms that gather together a lot of intelligence from frontline officers, from a lot of the department's technological resources, uh, things such as shot spotter, a gunshot detection system, and cameras, to really be able to get the best possible localized information about what's going on in these districts, what kind of patterns are we seeing in, in crime in these districts, and then use that information to construct you know, really targeted missions that are reflective of, of the facts on the ground, right? the, 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 the local conditions. Sort of stepping back for a second. I mean, your larger question is, what what can we what can we do? I think what we can do is we can we can look for promising interventions, whether they are whether they're going to be focused on at-risk youth, whether they're going to be community-based, whether they're going to be involving law enforcement, and try to provide as rigorous as possible an evidence base of which things work and which things don't, so that the city knows where it should be devoting its resources. And and and, and the ultimate hope is that by constructing this portfolio of strategies that we, we've shown to work, we can actually make an appreciable difference in, in violence in the city. This episode of Radio Harris was produced by me, Jake J. Smith. Big thanks to Max Kapustin and the University of Chicago Crime Lab. To learn more about their work, you can visit urbanlabs.uchicago.edu. Thanks for listening.